And then you had people who sort of tried to say, well, Jesus was like a like a special third thing, you know, like a like he was um, like a, one of those plums that tastes like apples, you know. <laughs> I was wondering what illustration you were reaching for there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Our compatriot, Matt Kennedy, the third member of our merry band, is buried under three feet of snow in upstate New York. <laughs> That's right. I hope he had a snorkel, yeah. he had a snorkel and his little uh, beeping uh, beeper with him when it How's, came How's uh, life in balmy Charleston? It's great. It's great. It's cold for us here. I think it's something like it's 46 degrees, but there's like 95% humidity, humidity. So it's like, it's a very, it's not a dry cold. No, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very that's right. Uh, but no, it's great. It's great. It's uh, hard to get used to um, sort of wearing uh, shorts on Christmas morning, but it reminds me of my childhood in Baton Rouge where we, um, you know, you get used to what you get used to. So yeah, uh, I certainly don't miss Pittsburgh. My time in South Florida at, worshiping largely at a Presbyterian church that didn't acknowledge the existence of Advent at all. And with the weather, Christmas really snuck up on you all of a sudden. It was Christmas Eve and it was, you know, 85 degrees outside and you had no idea it was coming. It's awesome. (laughs) Crazy. But Christmas is around the corner. We've got a week left and we thought we'd take time today to talk about the doctrine behind that celebration. That is the incarnation, the coming of Jesus into the world. Of course, the church and that world has been trying to figure out what that event means pretty much ever since it happened. God become man, deity come to earth. Some of the earliest heresies in the life of the church came up around trying to figure out exactly who Jesus was, and some of the first councils were called around this exact question. So let's talk about the incarnation. If I was Seinfeld, I'd say, what's the deal with Jesus? Nobody gets that anymore, Nick. I know it's like, <laughs> man. Yeah, we're even old. Frazier, even my favorite Frazier, is so totally off the radar. But Friends is still hanging around. Yeah, yeah, I think you can watch it on Netflix. They need to bring Frazier back. Uh, maybe they canceled Seinfeld because of what, um, uh, you know, when, Michael um, Richards. Yeah, maybe that's what happened with him. Um, but at any rate, though, we're talking about the incarnation. Jesus, yeah. What's the deal with Jesus? Well, I love the, you know, not that I say I love the, hey, I love the incarnation. What a cool (laughs) idea. (laughs) But I do love the entire concept of the sort of intellectual history of it because, you know, it goes goes back to one of the fundamental realities of the way that Christian doctrine is formed. And it's formed out of a primary confession that would have been um, scandalous to the early hearers and yet held with great conviction. And then over time, that confession would not change, but the well, as it were, the flesh would be put on these ideas. And this is a perfect example because we see um, one of the earliest sort of uh, Christological confessions, Trinitarian even, by Thomas, you know, when famous, the the formerly, the artist formerly known as Doubting Thomas. (laughs) Um, He, um, you know, he says famously that he wants to see Jesus' wounds, stick my hand inside his nails, and then he does, and he exclaims, my Lord and my God, right? This is, uh, what is it, uh, Curios Monteos. And this was one of the earliest uh, documented uh, Christological confessions, meaning that he was simultaneously calling this man, you know, this crucified and risen man, both Lord, which wouldn't have been that um, uh, interesting in and of itself necessarily, but Lord and God. 
So you had a monotheistic Jew, faithful, who had now seen in this man this, this what would become the whole argumentation of the, the, the two natures of Christ, you know, God and man, this Lord and God. And I love the, the history of this because it points, as I said before, to this wonderful sort of gift of God that he implants these proclamatory ideas into the mouths of his people that can't, that are fundamentally unwavering. You know, I mean, there have been, that the, 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 the red thread of Christological discussion has always returned to something of this man. This man is both, is both God and man you know, something like that. And so as we're going to talk about, there have been a lot of ways to kind of try to slice that up or to meld the two, or uh, we're going to watch uh, the way that God providentially sort of leads his church uh, by, as it were, defining the guardrails of what can't be said about God while allowing um, a relatively wide swath of interpretive freedom within those guardrails, which allow for faithful proclamation across across his church. And so I, that's why I say it's not, it's not that, you know, hey, what a cool doctrine, you know, zwei Nutilea, as the Germans would say, the two natures teaching. But um, but at the same time, it's because it's one of the fundamental and first ones, it's it's illustrative for what I believe and have gone, gotten great comfort for, the way that God actually holds and providentially guides his church. I think it was C.S. Lewis who remarked that of all the people least likely to call a human being God, faithful Jews were the yeah, least sure. likely. The thing that set them apart from the nations from which they were desperate to be set apart was their monotheism. So That's right. the idea that that they were then presented with this man who they believed was God was cause for this, you know, huge explosion of theology to figure out how this worked and that's right as we said in the intro this is where you know um christian heretics trying to figure this out you know trying to work out could god who was holy and other come here and be part of this world which is broken and sinful and if he can't what does that mean if he can how does that work and so we get Gnosticism and docetism and all of these things. I, I wonder if you would walk us through a little bit of these sort of early attempts to figure out how, how it could be that a holy God could come to an unholy place. Well, I think, yeah, that's a really good, that, that's a good way to lay it out. And I think going back to, to start this off to your, to the statement by C.S. Lewis is that we see the prohibition um, you know, all the way back to the Ten Commandments, but well before, in fact, uh, that the against any worship of the creation, you know, any worship of the crea- uh, creation was seen as idolatrous. And so, as Paul even says, even though it's in the mouth of the now newly converted, that the fundamental lie that the um, rebellious, unbelieving heart embraces is to exchange the worship of the creator for the creature, mm-hmm. as he says, who is to be, you know, uh, exalted above all, amen. And therefore God turned them over to all of the debasing of them, of the creation, you know, which we see taking place all around us with the debasing of our nature, of our neighbors, and ultimately of ourselves. And so that's why the fundamental heresy that, that arose, uh, which actually pre- uh, precipitated a lot of the discussion between the relationship between the Old and New Testament, was uh, precipitated by a man named Marcion. 
Morrissey was a guy who had said, well, you know, that um, this can't be fundamentally the same God. We only worship one God, right? Mm -hmm. And so even if we, this, this predates the Christological heresies, but this gets to your this point. This is just a generation after Jesus' own life. This is in like right. the, the year 100, 120, around there. Right. And so this, so before we even get to Christological, he just decides, okay, let's worship Jesus as God. Okay. Let's, let's before we get into the, the, how this happened, but it clearly can't be the same God as this sort of wrathful, um, sort of demiurge of the old Testament. So he begins to uh, instigate this whole discussion about the relationship between uh, Jesus and his father, um, as it were, the old and the new Testament revelations of God, which precipitated Christological debates by saying, well, the old Testament has been superseded by the new in the person of the good God over against the, the evil sort of wrathful, angry God. And so this instigated this discussion, which uh, roused the sort of fire and ire of Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, who began to fight with Marcy, and in which, which, which we're going to see happen time and time again, even to our day, is that in the process of these argumentations, in the, in the existence of this conflict, actual errors were exposed and then addressed and therefore either put to rest or further elaborated and ultimately worked through. And so when they begin to talk back and forth about, um, well, wait, you know, Jesus was obviously referencing the Old Testament. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We can't separate the two. Like all of the New Testament writers, um, you know, were faithful Jews until they were converted. The sort of the cauldron of of um, of uh, discussion and and uh, conflict actually produces something beautiful. So the end result of that was that Marcy, and in particular, was labeled a heretic because it said we cannot divide the the Father from the Son. You know, and this again, the whole Trinitarian. Uh, confession would not come to be um, settled for centuries, um, you know, in any sort of confessional way. And yet this was the first step on the way towards beginning to, to develop these, these understanding of how God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were intertwined. And so that was at least the, the first one. And I'm very grateful for that because it actually allowed for, uh, or, or, it, or it set into historical uh, stone a guidepost that basically every generation has to revisit because when you are tempted to uh, divide God, it, God from father and son, then you begin to pit one against the other and you are falling into the same sort of heresy, rightly or wrongly, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, that Marcion did. We're grateful for Tertullian to, to, um, to have uh, addressed. And so uh, as far as I know, that was the first uh, one that began to lead into this discussion about, okay, if Jesus is God and he's not divided from his father, then he has, so he's fully human and fully man to some degree. How does that then work itself out? So if Tertullian had put to bed, as it were, put to rest the idea that we couldn't divide the father from the son in this way, well, then how was the son actually co-equal or, or as it were, had the same nature as the father? And that began the next discussions. And so, you know, I don't know exactly the, um, I'm sure, there's a book that I'm missing here somewhere, but but I know that that among the first early heresies that popped up, you know, as you well know, Docetism, which I think you have been um, sort of laboring under as a Docetist your entire <laughs> entire entire day career. Me. Don't I tell did. my bishop. I won't. Well, yes. Just don't listen to that knock on the door behind you. This is all this giant sting. But so tell us about that. Thanks. Well, this is an interesting thing because it's really sort of coming at the Jesus problem from the other side than Marcion did. So 
Marcion saw the disconnect or thought he saw the disconnect between um, holy, angry, lightning bolt throwing God and nice, loving Jesus. And so he wanted to separate them. He wanted to say the one cannot come from the other. So they have to be two distinct things. Whereas the Tocetists said, well, Jesus is clearly part of holiness, part of that otherness. And so what came to earth can't actually have been human. It just must have seemed human. Right. So the word Tocetism is from the Greek word to seem. And so the whole sort of earthly ministry of Jesus was kind of a Casper the friendly ghost situation. And the the crucifixion was sort of a show. It was a it was an example, a thing that that we were supposed to see and witness, but it was nothing real because nothing as holy as God and his son could possibly participate in something as unholy as human life, including things like birth and going to the bathroom to say nothing of grisly death on the cross. And so these things, I think of them, Marcionites on one side and their docetists on the other side, trying to figure out this Jesus thing from opposite ends of the spectrum, neither of whom were able to see the truth that the Lord is actually speaking in two ways as we keep coming back to week after week here on the podcast, week after week in our churches. The only way to understand the scriptures as a unified whole is to not try to find one thing that God is saying. Like, how is Jesus like the wrathful God? Well, he's two words. He is law and gospel. He is promise and commandment. And so these, these two ways of speaking mean that there can be one God, not two gods, or one God pretending to be two, or any of these other things. This is the way to actually understand scripture. Well, now you're jumping to the punchline, Nick. Sorry, sorry. But that's good. You just can't (laughs) stop preaching. But that's exactly right. And I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm always sensitive to the echoes of these early heresies in modern day. And I think this one, as much as Marcion, is still alive and well, because you'll hear people say things, they'll talk about Jesus, in his human, in his humanity, as if he wasn't really a human, you know, that he, wink, wink, well, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus was like Superman, you know, and so he looked yeah. like us, he talked like us, and he, um, but, you know, it's like, I, I always use that, uh, you know, the one, but was it a Christopher Nolan Superman where he gets shot in the eyeball? Remember that? Which is uh, the one where No, he, Christopher Nolan didn't do bullet. any of those. That was Brian Singer. Thank you. Well, because that's the what people think of Jesus. They're like, um, he was pretty much, uh, you know, Superman, but there's, there's, you know, he always was, um, when he was on the cross, he, uh, you know, he wasn't really suffering. He wasn't really um, in this humanity. I don't know why I brought up the um, bullet and the eyeball, except that I feel like that was where they proved that he really wasn't in any way uh, human. Because I always wondered, like, what if Superman got shot by like a sniper rifle right in the eyeball? Could he, what would happen? He never saw it coming. Yeah, that's right. Like, did he, was even that. And then, but the point is that um, many people, and I think this is in part, this is a longer conversation. I think this is in part why we see the rise in the um, sort of intercession of of the saints, most notably Mary, um, throughout church history. Because Jesus, to the extent that you think Jesus was not actually fully human, well, then he becomes less... um, 
understandable to us and less of an actual intercessor uh, in and of himself for our genuine trials and temptations. So no one's ever argued for the most part that Mary or sort of the other saints have been less than human or more than human. And so they become more accessible to us than this sort of Superman Jesus. Because like, yes, yes, I'm sure he really was hurt. You know, he really died. He really was angry. He really was afraid. But that, in fact, is the radical proclamation of the incarnation is that um, as difficult as it will be and is for us to fully comprehend that he was fully human. You know, and then in Philippians, it says he who knew equality with God chose not to uh, uh, keep that equality, but, but this, this Greek word, um, kenosis, you know, he, 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 he laid it down. He, he divested himself of his, of his divinity uh, while remaining God, nevertheless, by taking on the form of a, of a human born of, the, under, of a woman under the law, as Paul says. And so this is one of the difficult, I think, heresies that continue that makes sense, but is really important to understand and to listen for in your contemporary interactions with people, because you want to say that Jesus, as a sinless man, was definitely different from us by nature. He didn't have a sin nature, but in terms of his ontology, as it were, in terms of his, his um, humanity, he was fully human. And so his wrestle and his temptations were different than ours are in the, into the sense that, that we, ours are what did the reformers say? The, um, the, the tender box of sin. You know, he did not have this tender box. And yet he also could be tempted, as we know, uh, just as we are, yet without sin, uh, which would look in some ways different. And there's a lot of people that talk about um, all these various ways. And yet the, the existence of them, the power of them, the, the struggling with them and the actual humanity of them is something that he shares with us so that through his humanity, ours could be atoned for and redeemed. And so that's one of the, the errors of docetism that has to be confronted, because when we talk about Jesus as a human, we're talking about someone who is different than you and I are, and that he was sinless, I mean, to- totally faithful, tempted uh, to be faithless at all points as we are and never failing. And it, because of that, his struggles, his suffering, and his, his, um, his ultimate um, uh, redemption was, was that much more you know, powerful and profound than we could ever imagine. And I think that's what, what needs to be highlighted with respect to docetism. And I think I'm just going to call attention to the flip side of the coin again, because you just described the error of sort of pushing Jesus too far up above humanity. He's, he's not like us, so we might take the example of Mary or Stephen and sort of ask them for help rather than Jesus, who can actually stand in our place, whereas in the liberal Protestantism that you and I have a lot of experience with, what I see is actually the opposite. More commonly, that they bring Jesus down out of the divine totally, right. and he now is just a man, and then he becomes he becomes the ultimate example. He is well, that's because they're the one to follow. They're Arians. Well, that's, well, no, that's move exactly on to right. Arianism. That's right. That's because they're modern day Arians. That's exactly right. That Jesus. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily say this explicitly, but in practicality, you know, Arius was con- was um, was concerned of keeping. This is why it's so fascinating. The intellectual history of this is just because Arius was also concerned of keeping monotheism alive. You know, how do you have this man um, that was a creature, a creator, uh, a creature uh, worshipped as God, particularly, which makes good sense logically, if he was co-eternal with God, but he didn't have a body. You know, he born, he was born a baby. So what was the deal with him before he was a baby? Like, how do you? explain all this and you know you can see how you begin to wrestle with this stuff so i'm sympathetic to a certain degree with Arius, um logically speaking but the problem is 
is that all of the heresies ultimately devolve into the same thing, is that they, they take the proclamation of the gospel, that there is no name under heaven whereby a man can be saved, namely Jesus, and turn it into some synchristic, synchronistic, um, sort of moralistic, syncretistic, uh, syncretistic, and synchronous synchronicity. <laughs> that's a police album. Syn- is it? Right? <laughs> that's right. Well, I'm sure that's why I know it, since I just um, uh, want to be um, really into Sting. Phil Collins. That's right. <laughs> oh, not Phil Collins. My gosh. I know. I'm exposing my um, yeah. ignorance of. Uh, well, was that all? Phil Collins was. What was he? Genesis. In? Oh well, other. Um, whatever. I just um, listened to. Um, sort of dirty south rap when i was in high school so we're we're talking about syncretists now yes so syncretism (laughs) cut that part out so that's the best part that's what everybody likes that's that's for the fans (laughs) that's the that's right those are easter eggs right into our uh, so um so the problem is that all of the heresies ultimately turn into a syncretistic uh sort of understanding of you know essentially the fundamental heresy which is if you you know, you do your part and God will pick up the rest, which is, um, which is not Christianity, which is not uh, the gospel. And so with Arius, even if your part is 99.99, even if his part is 99.99% as, and yours is only 0.01%, that's not yeah. Christianity. That's right. And so, you know, uh, Arianism, the, all these things took a variety of shapes and forms, but fundamentally Arius said that, um, you know, before he, before he was, before, there was when he was not, that's exactly right. That's what he says. And so, uh, so Christ was the first creature of God, and as exalted as he was, I mean, this gets into, you know, adoptionism, and, you know, whether he's adopted as the best man, or he was exalted as the best man, or he was infused as the best man, whatever the case may be, he essentially was not ontologically, fundamentally God, and therefore was distinct from God himself, in Ipse, um, and and was worshipped in a different way. And so, therefore, the way that we model him, you know, the way, the way that we are seen as our own uh, created lives is, like you said before, is that we can see him as a sort of moral exemplar to follow, as a possibility even to sort of reach, you know, this is sort of where you see some of the even modern-day Arian um, uh, heresies, you know, that we have the possibility of becoming like Jesus himself with respect to God. Um, this you is know, what the LDS church Exactly. Teaches specifically. And so, you know, we have these ideas uh, that all come down again to a rejection of the fundamental confession that is my Lord and my God, that there is this one man who is both God and man. And we see in Arius, uh, you know, there's a lot of Arius, Arianism um, back in the day. You know, I mean, they seem to, to, there were many, many faithful non-Arians who died assuming that they had lost the battle. You know, this was, um, and we're grateful that, that eventually the truth won out, or at least the confession won out, and was able to put down Arius uh, by the Council of Nicaea. But it was, you know, it was a fight. It was a fight from all corners of the <laughs> Christian world at that point. The emperor himself literally got involved. Yeah. And so they, you know, and but again, I, just to keep highlighting it, is that the the errors are always erring on the side of of denying something of the radical statement of the scriptures, which then is the manger, as Luther said, the cradle that would hold the, the radical proclamation of the gospel. Because um, who was it? Gregory of Nunzianzus, I think, said that which cannot be assumed cannot be redeemed, right? I mean, that we were not... I have the literal quote right here. I actually have that quote. I can't even believe it. Gregory of Nunzianzus, for what has not been assumed has not been healed. 
It is what is united to his divinity that is saved. Amen. Well, that's exactly right. And so, you know, how that works out is a, is a mystery, but that it is like that has, has been guarded. And we're grateful for Apollinarism, you know, say that the, that the, the divine took over the human, right? That's how that there was sort of, sort of subsumed the humanity. So that was a version of docetism probably almost, you know, that they had sort of this super, super God human, you know, which again goes contrary to, to the scriptures. Even though Jesus had an unfiltered, unfaithful relationship to his father by the power, you know, notice all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is driven by the spirit or guided by the spirit. So there's this, and again, James, um, Dunn has a wonderful book called Jesus and the Spirit that, at least for me, helped sort of work through some of this about the relationship between the earthly Jesus, the power of the Spirit, and the relationship with his Father. And sort of, again, I mean, it's, it's, it's all Christian theology should be devotional, doxological theology, because it certainly is not the final word. But it was helpful in that respect to figure out, okay, you know, it's like Luther was like radically... Cyrillian in his Christology, meaning that he he emphasized over against uh, many people even to his day how radically human Jesus became. You know, like his Luther was 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 emphasizing that Jesus was as a, in a sense, you know, because he was the second Adam, he was essentially after the fall the first human. You know, the first yeah. real picture, the first first point of true redemption, which means, you know, Luther would always emphasize sort of the more, more we would consider mundane in the technical sense aspects of Jesus's life, like how, how, for instance, the sanitized nativity scenes, you know, it's like that wouldn't like, like the, the, as I heard someone say recently, like the straw would be a little bit, uh, you know, the diapers were not uh, you know, a box of huggies, you know, sorts of things. And, um, you know, sort of the a little town of Bethlehem, no crying he makes, you know, because and that's just all so contrary to Luther, who uses actually some quite, um, well, we should just say some earthy language to talk about God incarnate. That's the but, I, yeah. but I love that because what it's highlighting is this very thing that the radical aspect of God in Christ actually, you know, as it were modeling to be sure, but not modeling a superhuman, but modeling an actual human, right. an actual human who is untainted by uh, sin, death, and the devil, who is not beset by anxiety, you know, fear, anger, and, and um, shame, like Adam and Eve after the fall, and wrestles through the uh, implications of redeeming that world, you know, in the face of his in- impending death and the, all of the, the sacrifices he would ultimately make. And nevertheless, then gives us a picture of what uh, true life unencumbered by sin by the power of the spirit in relation to the father might actually look like. And it's, it's amazing. And Luther, I have to say really was uh, helpful in my own thinking about appreciating the humanity of Christ in this respect. Um, in a way that I, I think I probably was a, I mean, I think most people are always kind of falling on some area of one of these heresies in their practical day-to-day lives. One um, side or the other. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's an old adage in the Church of England, at least, that uh, Trinity Sunday was known as the curate Sunday because you were guaranteed to preach some heretical thing. And so they made the curate uh, preach on that Sunday. And so you I, did um, that to me a couple of times. I did. And now I'm the curate. So there we go. <laughs> uh, so I get to, I get to do it. Um, but I think, you know, you had this, this fight about all these people about trying to figure out, um, about how this worked and I'm sympathetic to it. Uh, you know, like we said, Apollinarian, the, the Jesus is absorbed into the divine. Then you had Nestorius, you know, Nestorius was saying that they were totally divided, you know, that it was like, that it was a moral 
as it were, um, unity. So the human Jesus did all the right stuff, but in terms of like the, the hypostatic union or whatever, you know, it wasn't actually fully God and fully man. And then you had people who sort of tried to say, well, Jesus was like a, like a special third thing, you know, like a, like he was, um, like, um, one of those plums that tastes like apples, you know. <laughs> I was wondering what illustration you were reaching for there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you know, have you just had one of those? They're they're horrific, but uh, but there you go. And so it's like something that only existed once, right? You know, which means that you know, there's when you read the things, the verses like in Hebrews where it says, "He who you know was tempted as we were yet without sin, we have a great high priest who's, who's familiar with our suffering." To all these things, the incarnation itself becomes something something unobtainable or or even more ethereal than what it actually was than it doesn't God. actually work right i mean right. with the the if you push jesus at all off the 100% and 100% right fully god fully man if you push him even a little bit to fully god like he's less human than us, then that means he can't stand in our place on the cross and he cannot proclaim it is finished and have that actually be applied to us. And if you push him the other way, a little bit more human and he's not quite fully God, then he can't actually bear the weight of the sin of the world. And again, we're not saved. So the, the classical biblically orthodox teaching has always been that he must be to be an efficient savior actually 100% man to stand in our place and 100% Lord to bear the sins of the world. Only then can he actually save us. Yes, that's good. That's good. And I think, and I think, you know, as, as I've lived now and, and sort of walked through various um, heresies in my own life, you know, I think one of the most prevalent ones that I both embodied, um, ironically, as you'll hear, but also see around me is the very, fact of missing the importance of the incarnation read the importance of the body you know i think that's one of the things that um because i think for a long time i don't think for a long time uh the idea of the incarnation was again this is not a slight to eastern orthodoxy but there was this sort of emphasis within eastern orthodoxy of theosis which is sort of a a raising up of the of the body to to sort of divinize you know sort of a, a divinization and again i have a lot of eastern orthodox friends who say that precisely at that point, which is why we are so embodied and Eastern Orthodox worship is very embodied. So I don't want to say that that's, um, that's necessarily the logical end of that, that assumption. And you uh, and I yeah. can be forgiven for this a little bit because of our history in liberal Protestantism, where we would say what it's all about, and with perhaps an erroneous extra weight, we would say it's all Speak about the crucifixion. We would, we would say it's all about the crucifixion and resurrection. And we'd have these liberal Episcopalians say, well, I'm really into the incarnation. Right. And what they would mean is I'm really into loving like Jesus loved. And we That's would right. say, I'm really into Jesus as my savior. That's and right. of course, you know, we're just leaning a little bit too far the other way, but it's really not because of any reaction against exactly. Eastern Orthodoxy. It's exactly. a reaction against the liberal Protestants we were trying to do ministry among. Well, yeah, and that's the problem in the whole, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, well, that's exactly right. And I can see that in my own life is that there was even times when we would talk about, you know, as it were, choosing between being people of the incarnation or people of the atonement, right. you know, which is a false dichotomy. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that that was a, again, a product of how far the divide had been pushed to either side. And I think that when we go back to the scriptures, you know, and this is, again, where Luther, for me, at the very least, is, is our guide, is my guide. And I'm sure that we, 
you know, as everyone has one, if you've gotten to this place, you're in the right place. <laughs> but, um, but is that the whole point that I read in Romans 6 in particular, 6, 7, and 8, but 6 in particular with respect to the groaning of creation and Jesus being the first fruit of this new creation, right? That's 6, or is it 8? Um, I think it was 8 now, early of 8. But the point is, that section in Romans is that because of Jesus as our, as our second Adam, as it were, to be buried by faith and raised to him a new life by faith, um, then we have been, the world itself has been given back to us. Just as the world itself incarnationally had been redeemed by Jesus's taking on human flesh, so then by his redemption, even the very creation that was crying out can be seen as a gift as opposed to a, well, as a threat, um, as many people see it naturally, or as a tool, or as a or as a uh, commodity, you know. However, else you, people see the world, and that goes, as, if anything, for the body. You know, you begin to look at like the the way that you're. Again, this isn't like an, an advertisement for you know GNC or, or Joe Weider or something, you know. But but there is a there is an appreciation for an attempt to be a good steward of your body, an attempt to to enjoy um, the the gift of health when you have, you know, the gift of, of procreation, the gift of, of, of um, food, the gift of, of all of the physical things of life that many religious traditions outside of Christianity see as one of two things. You know, this is just like with money we talked about a while back. You know, r- religions basically without the incarnation have one of two stances to created things, which is that they're either things to be enjoyed to your own pleasure. Like, again, we talk about all the time. Um, Epicurean. Uh, Epicureanism, yeah. or there are things to be mastered and and controlled, like stoicism. You know, and you go down the line, you look or avoided, like asceticism. That's right. Yeah. You know, God loves me. This is why I have a gold-plated bathroom, for instance. You know, this is on the <laughs> other side, and you've got everything in between. Well, that's a, that's classically the way that you understood to be God's favor was when you had a gold-plated bathroom. Gold-plated. That goes all the way back to Ehud. Ehud in the Old Testament. Right? Anyway, <laughs> he had a special private bathroom that had yeah. to be infiltrated before he was knifed to death. But anyway, so uh, this is why, again, the incarnation begins to be this wonderful intellectual seed that is still growing to this day. It's still providing fodder for Christian discussion. It's still providing um, consternation for non-Christian sort of rejection uh, because it begins with this radical idea that God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? Yeah. And his son didn't just come to redeem it, but came to not redeem it in, in purchase power, but actually to incarnate and, and redeem it by, by suffusing it and, and recreating it, as it were, you know? And that the promise would be the new heavens and the new earth will come. And so then that begins to, to spill over into everything. Well, what about, you know, if, he, if, if humanity was the pinnacle of creation, and we are in the image of God, well, then what does that say about people? What does that say about relationships? What does that say about other things, you know, like elephants, you know, which they're not in the image of God, although they're beautiful, you know, X, Y, Z. And, you know, what about money? What about family, children, relationships, work? It just go down the line, and it all begins in this manger, you know, begins in this, in this place where God interacts with the world in a unique and theretofore unimaginable way. 
not, not that he just became a human, you know, because Zeus became a human or a, right. or a duck or a, you know, a golden rain or something. That's right. And, um, you know, it's just sort of messed around with, with humanity. But the actual fact that he not only became a human would have been, you know, offensive to the Jews, but sort of an oddity and not totally outside the realm of, of conceptual thought for the Greeks. And yet when he was crucified, it became foolishness and a stumbling block to both. And then when he was redeemed, it then became this radical profession, my Lord, my God, that has yet to be silenced. And so, you know, you even see it today. It's like, you know, people argue about um, modern day Epicureans and modern day Stoics and modern day ascetics still argue about the body in one way, shape or form. And we keep, what do we keep pointing back to? Well, you know, God uh, created us and he created us in certain ways and he created us good in certain ways. And the fact that we have fallen and that the goodness has been shattered, if not uh, obliterated, you know, let's say obliterated, that puts us out, outside the realm. But you could say uh, the, the shattered visage, you know, has been that we, we, we resemble that remark. And yet Christ came to, to redeem and to save. And this is how he began and did it. And that's what Christmas is about. You know, that's mm-hmm. what Christmas. And I think um, I'm grateful that this side of heaven, all of these amazing mysteries of God that he has revealed to us will continue to do two things. They prompt genuine cons- uh, speculation and, and discussion because we've, we're curious, you know, we're, we're curious and we want to um, know, you know, fides qua intellectual, you know, we, we believe in order to understand but at the same time, they ultimately, like we've said time and time again, lead to Romans 11. You know, how wonderful and majestic and unsearchable are the riches of God, because, because he will finally reveal to us, uh, you know, the, the exact uh, mechanisms by which fully God and fully man uh, operates. But until then, we know that the, the ramifications of that are protecting the proclamation of the gospel, which is that he is actually for you, not like spiritual you or you know only you when you get it together or you only people who suffered more or less than you but you yourself like your actual body your actual life your actual uh, historical embodied existence because he has walked already through that very thing for you and that's the um that's the angels you know it's for you is born this day in the city of david a savior who's christ the lord like that's that's the ultimate end of the incarnation that proclamation and all of these heresies try to pull something, you know, for you, if you get it together or, or when, when you, when you, um, you know, when things are going well or whatever the case may be, you know, um, do your best and then this will finally make sense to you. But this is what the angel said, um, for you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who's Christ the Lord. I think we've given people a lot to think about this uh, Christmas season, notably um, that Synchronicity is a police album <laughs> and that Phil Collins was I in Genesis. I can't dance. I can't Only thing about it. Oh, my goodness. But most of all, that singing our, drummer. our holy God came here to earth to live as one of us, to die in our place and to be raised again for our redemption and that's what we're going to be celebrating hopefully um you and your churches and us and ours that is all the time that we're going to take this week we do hope that you'll keep the conversation going with us please be in touch you can rate and review the podcast on itunes uh, send us an email at mailbag at stand firm in faith.com 
We're, as always, grateful that you took the time to be with us today. Thanks to J.D. Koch. Our hope is that Matt Kennedy will tunnel his way out of his house (laughs) soon. Uh, I don't know that we'll be back next week. It is Christmas week, but you never know. Miracles happen. Uh, But we'll see you next time. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. (laughs) 